Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this week's show on Sunday, October 24th. I've actually been down in Orlando since Tuesday, recording a brand new bunch of walk-around shows with Lentesta, and once Arian finishes editing these, they'll become available to Bandcamp subscribers. Whereas you, you, Drew, once again, you get to do so much cool stuff out in L.A., so Inside of just a couple of days, you got to sit down with Enrico Casarosa, the director of Luca. Yep. How did that interview go? It was great. You know, the uh, festival, you know, season and award season is upon us, Jim. So Mm -hmm. it was really great to just sit down with him. We chatted for about 30 minutes and it'll Mm -hmm. be in an upcoming issue of the Raps magazine for uh, award season. So look for that. I'm sure I'll send you a, a hard copy, Jim, when it comes out. But cool, got cool. a lot of great details out of him, and mm-hmm. and it was just lovely to see him because you know I, we we interviewed him on the show over Zoom, mm-hmm. and he and I go back and forth on Twitter a lot. But it was mm-hmm. just nice to kind of see him in the flesh and get to chat about this amazing movie, which I I still am just madly in love with. I was laboring under the mistake of there is a Luca-inspired short, Ciao Alberto, is that correct? Yes. Okay, coming up on Disney Plus on November 12th, and I thought that Enrico had actually directed this, but you corrected my mistake, right? Yeah, he did not direct it. I'm sure he produced it, but Mm -hmm. it was directed by McKenna Harris, Mm -hmm. who was a story artist, I believe, on the feature Okay. And, um, yeah, we should reach out to Pixar and, and have uh, McKenna on and talk about the short. It'll be a big part of Disney Plus Day, which I, I know you and I are just fiendishly awaiting oh, uh, in a couple of weeks. I've already got my special hat ready, Drew. Yeah, if I survive fandom, I can survive Disney Plus Day. So, yeah. But you didn't just get to do that. You got to see Belle, which you were up at the uh, up on Lancashire, the, 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 the Lemel Theater, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was in it was in anticipation of the Animation is Film Festival, mm-hmm. which is wrapping up tonight, and which is which where uh, Enrico will be showing on a big screen Luca for like one of the handful of times. And yeah, I know this is this has been one of you and I's most anticipated movies of the year, and it mm-hmm. totally lives up to our excitement. It is absolutely wonderful. And I was actually, yeah, I was talking with some of the guys at Cartoon Saloon because they did Mm -hmm. some of the backgrounds Mm -hmm. and they haven't even seen the finished movie yet. So I guess it has not come to Ireland yet. But yeah, it is really wonderful. I can't wait to talk to you about it, Jim. There is a piece of animation that might be my favorite bit of character animation the whole year and I can't wait to talk to you about it. But it is really wonderful. It'll be coming out um, from G Kids in the new year, mm-hmm. and there will probably be a Oscar qualifying run. So once we get that information, we will of course blast it out. But it is it is a absolute dream. You're you're gonna love it, Jim. Okay. Well, as Drew mentioned, as soon as we get that news, we will share it. And speaking of news, news portion of today's show is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. For a worry-free travel experience, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. Now, again, when when you got the talk with uh, Enrico, you got to go to the Hollywood's historic Roosevelt Hotel where they held the Academy Awards downstairs there back in 29, right? The first time? Oh, yeah. I love that hotel. It's so cool. No, I I, I agree. I agree. I, on the other hand, I was at the AMC at, at Disney Springs catching... Ron's Gone Wrong. And you've also seen this 20th Century Studios release of a locksmith animation production, right? I have seen it. And I'm very jealous you got to go to uh, 
AMC and Disney Springs, because I always used to love during the information channel where they would actually show a trailer of whatever movie was playing at the Pleasure Island AMC. Do you remember that? They would, like, show a trailer for Pinocchio or whatever Mm -hmm. Disney thing. But anyway, yeah, I saw Ron's Gone Wrong a couple weeks ago. I thought it was just, I thought it was amiable and Mm -hmm. inoffensive, and I thought that the animation by Deneg was really interesting, and I've been a fan of theirs for a long time. They are sort of Christopher Nolan's go-to mm-hmm. animation studio, and I think they did stuff for Ghost, the new Ghostbusters, which I really, I really liked the new Ghostbusters that's coming out in November. So, yeah, I thought it was fine. I thought the plot was a little haphazard. I wish there was sort of more cultural specificity anywhere. It was just sort of, I, it was fine. <laughs> I will continue Drew's tepid praise. I mean, I, I thought Ron Son Wrong was solid. It was professionally produced. I, I have to admit, I'm getting a little tired of seeing a pseudo Steve Jobs trotted out as this generation's film villain. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it was a movie that was very much set in, in today's world where it would be true that the absolutely worst thing that could ever happen to a middle school girl is have a video of them being pooped out by a robot go viral. Well, I think that you're also hitting on an interesting point, which is that the fact that it's come out eight months after Mitchell's versus the Machines is not doing it any favors. No, it is not. It is not. And they weren't anticipating that it was going to do all that well. In fact, last night, the 745 show that I attended said it was maybe 20% full, if that. On the other hand, you mentioned trailers just a moment ago. Lots and lots of trailers for animated things tacked onto the front of Ron It's Gone Wrong. We got Look at the Big Red Dog from Paramount, which is opening on November 20th. Uh, we got Disney's Encanto on November 24th. Sing from Illuminations for December 22nd. And then Pixar's Turning Red. They were pushing that with this one, which has a March 11th, uh, 2022 release date. And DreamWorks Animation's next feature-length project, The Bad Guys, did you see where that's had its release date moved up by a week? It's now going to be opening in theaters on April 22nd, which is just six weeks after a Turn in Red? No, I, I mean, this movie I think we're all very excited about, but we haven't really seen anything or heard anything about it. So, so that's uh, good. Are are you hearing the same things that I'm hearing, that it's kind of an animated Reservoir's Dogs? That's what the artwork seems to suggest. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I can't wait to actually see some character designs and stuff, because it, be, it could be fun, I think. Have you heard the logline for this? Yeah, you want me to, you want me to read it out for, for everybody? Go ahead. The bad guy centers on a crew of animated outlaws comprised of a pickpocket Mr. Wolf, voiced by Sam Rockwell, safecracker Mr. Safe, voiced by Mark Marin, Master of Disguise, Mr. Shark, voiced by Craig Robinson, Short-Fused Muscle, Mr. Piranha, voiced by Anthony Ramos, and Expert Hacker, Miss Tarantula, voiced by Aquafina, as they attempt their most challenging con yet, becoming model citizens. Mm. Now, am I the only one that thinks that if there's a character named Mr. Wolf in here that they should have tried to get Harvey Keitel? <laughs> I would have enjoyed that myself, but... Okay, so... Netflix next animated feature, Back from the Outback, looks pretty promising as well. They, they had a teaser for this Claire Knight, Harry Cripps film uh, popped up online recently. And, okay, I'll do the logline of this one. Okay, got it. Back to the Outback follows a ragtag group of Australians' deadliest creatures. After tiring of life in the zoo's reptile house, where humans gawk at them like monsters, these creatures plot a daring escape from their cages. They then embark on a road trip across 
the continent. The creatures hope to finally be free once they reach the outpost, but first they have to evade the zookeeper, voiced by Eric Bana, who is pursuing them, along with his adventure-seeking mini-me, Diesel La Toraka. That dropped on Netflix December 10th. Well, I thought it was interesting that the trailer was just kind of a TikTok dance. Yeah, if you think about it, December 10th, that's a blink of an eye. Yeah. But again, this is Netflix. I don't, you know, they don't necessarily have to push that early. Yeah, I think I'm seeing some of this movie this week. So uh, if I can report back on it, I will. Cool, cool. Now, speaking of which, I know from what you tweeted out earlier that you have seen the new animated series on Netflix that just debuted this past Friday, The Inside Job. Yes. This has been on you and my radar for the longest time because it's being executive produced by Alex Hirsch of of Gravity Falls fame. And this animated series for adults actually seems to sort of share a sensibility with Gravity Falls in that the show looks like it ever met a conspiracy theory it didn't like. Yeah, it's about this kind of corporation that's responsible for all of the conspiracies in the world. And there's a great episode that you're going to love, Jim, where somebody sends an email accidentally insulting the lizard people and they have to uh, kind of make peace with the lizard people. It is an absolute scream. And I think that episode actually was co-written by our friend Alex Hirsch of uh, Gravity Falls fame. So it's a lot of fun and it's just completely out of control and outrageous. And if this tells you what kind of show there is, Jim, you, you were at, you were sort of asking what my favorite character was, and there mm-hmm. is a the Mothman of the Mothman prophecies is voiced by the great Ron Funkus, who you know is is uh, King Shark on Harley Quinn, who we love, and he he is the head of the HR department. So Mr. Mothman, Jim, is who oh. you go to when there is an inner office dispute. So. Oh. Okay. All right. I get off the plane on Monday afternoon. I will be watching this by Monday evening. Yes, but not for the kids. I I will say that. Um, Okay. Have you been watching, did you watch The Ghost uh, and Molly McGee yet? Have you watched any of that? I have watched a a couple of them and I really enjoy this. So I've been, I've been anticipating this one for quite a while, just based on the fact that Dana Snyder is involved and, uh, but it's, it's a great marriage of good writing Great voices and really startlingly good animation for an animated series. Surprise, surprise, Jim. It, it is done by our friends Mercury Filmworks, a.k.a. the best in the biz. And yeah, I, I love it, too. I think the songs are really good, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, the first five are on Disney Plus right now, so you don't have to have a cable subscription to watch those. So check them out. Okay. Well, we were just talking in in regard to Inside Job about mysterious things found in dark corners. And on a recent episode of Fine Tuning, I told the story that I half remembered about a child star from the 1950s who, in their memoirs, recalled exploring the old RKO lot and stumbling across the stop motion puppets that Willis O'Brien used when he was animating the original King Kong. Well, Fine Tuning fan Ron Havens reached out via Twitter and was looking for some specifics from the story. So I actually went down into the basement and found the really for real book this was in. So to set the stage here, that the old RKO lot, which is where both King Kong and Gone with the Wind were shot back in the 30s. In fact, if you're watching in the right place in the burning of Atlantis scene, you can actually see the wall that they put up to keep King Kong in burns down while, you know, Scarlet and Red, or, or excuse me, stunt people dressed as Scarlet and Red are 
trying to get a horse-drawn cart through this blaze. 1956, Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball buy the old RKO lot. They then base their television production company, Desilu, there and proceed to rent out RKO's old town stages and backlot sets to many of the other TV production companies that have popped up all over town. I wonder if the the Aaron Sorkin the Aaron Sorkin film that's coming up's got a touch on this, right? Oh yeah, that did you see the trailer? It looks it looks good. No, 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 I agree. I it actually looks really good. But this brings us to the second iteration of the Lassie TV show. The series originally debuted September fifty four, and at that point, the Lassie the Collie Dog was owned by Jeff Miller. For the fourth season of the show, the producers decided to freshen things up by bringing in a new family to own Lassie. This is where the Martins. And their son, Timmy, who was played by John Provost, comes in. Whenever he wasn't needed in front of the camera, young Mr. Provost loved to explore the RKO lot. He would go into the corners of this 14-acre facility and often accidentally cover a hunk of Hollywood history. So, all right, I pulled this from John Smart with through seriously. The title of this thing is Timmy's in the Well, uh, the, the John Provost story. The fact that you saw this on a bookshelf and said, yes, I would like to purchase Timmy's in the Well. <laughs> How often do you get that title? All That's right? true. I, I, and I'm sure the person at Barnes & Noble was floored when you brought that up to the uh, the checkout stand. But anyway. So anyway, so Provost goes on to describe how the old arcade lot had become his personal playground. I'd scoot around the lot, peeking in sound stages and buildings, poking behind scenery. And late one afternoon on the west side of the lot, I found a steep driveway leading to a cavernous space underground, underneath the soundstage. It was one of the, those great places a kid knows is off-limits. So there, uh, Provost finds a storage area filled with the remnants of 40 years of filmmaking, a, a two-story facility filled with old props and sets. And so one day, while being careful not to get his, his red and white checked shirt dirty, he's still in costume for playing Timmy in the Lassie show. Provost comes across the, the cinematic find of the century. And uh, again, this is straight out of the book. That I could not believe my eyes. Even from across the room, I recognized him. King Kong. He was about 16 inches high. I knew the movies well enough to know that Kong wasn't a giant creature that he appeared to be on screen. But hey, even Lassie was a boy. And Mods had gotten to Kong's fur. He, he, he needed to be patched up in places and looked like he battled one too many stegosauruses. But it was King Kong, all right. In fact, there were a couple of them there on the shelf. Two were busts and the others were full figures. Nearby stood some of the prehistoric creatures that Kong had conquered, the pterodactyl and the triceratops, and slowly and carefully I lifted Kong's arms. He was fantastic. Provost went on to say whenever there was another boy or girl guest starring on Lassie that John felt the need to impress, he'd lead this youngster down into the depths of the storage area under that soundstage and then show them the Kong props. And according to Provost, they never failed to impress. but, you know, the other thing that never fails to impress the feature pieces that he drew here writes for papers of record like the New York Times, likewise, websites like Polygon. And then this past Thursday, Drew dropped another doozy, which took readers behind the scene on the creation of that now rarely seen animated short from 1995, Runaway Brain. And when we get back from this break, Mr. Taylor and I are going to share some stories about the creation of this Mickey Mouse cartoon. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy, you go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. 
you'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Before we jump into talking about Runaway Brain, which is a great, great animated shirt, Drew, I think we both agree that it's a real disservice to Chris Bailey and his crew that Paul Ruddish's Mickey Mouse shorts, which, again, are terrific on their own right, are celebrated for their craziness and over-the-top quality. Hell, isn't that version of Mickey now the face of Walt Disney television animation or Walt Disney branded television animation? Yeah, there was even a line of uh, Imagineering stuff uh, that you could get at uh, Mickey's of Glendale that had that Mickey and the Sorcerer Mickey outfit and the um, Imagineering branding. So that tells you how how deep it is. Well, just it makes me crazy that they're celebrated, whereas Runaway Brain remains locked in the Disney vault. And I wanted to test you on a few other Disney animation related things before we, we get to Drew's feature, but... I've been down here at Walt Disney World for five and six days, and while I was here, I got to see the Beauty and the Beast sing-along, which originally debuted at Palais du Cinema at the Epcot France Pavilion back in January of last year. And the only way to describe this is that this is basically wicked for seven-year-olds in that everything that you previously thought you knew about Disney's Beauty and the Beast is wrong, that it wasn't fate or destiny that brought Belle and the Beast together, but rather LeFou. And Don Hahn, who produced the original hand-drawn version of Beauty and the Beast back in 91, and then executive produced the live-action version of that same story in 2017 for Disney, uh, he wrote, heard on the, the creation of this 15-minute long sing-along. And to ensure that the new scenes, which show LeFou working behind the scenes, you know, standing in the shadows to bring Belle and Beast together, fit in seamlessly with the clips of the hand-drawn animation from Beauty and the Beast that had been done in the early 90s, Han reportedly recruited some of the animators who actually original worked on the original film. Uh, he even brought Jesse Corday back, the actor who originally voiced LeFou, to read this character's uh, additional dialogue. And icing on the cake is that Han somehow persuaded the now 96-year-old Angela Lansbury to reprise her vocal performance as Mrs. Potts. So that teapot serves as the narrator of the sing-along and in the end, it's a fun, air-conditioned way to kill time while you're waiting for your boarding group for Remy's Ratatouille Adventure to begin. 
I think it should have been Josh Gad. You know, I'm just going to put that out there. Friend of the show, Josh Gad. Hello, Ava. I think mm-hmm. it should have been him in this new in this new version. I'm just going to say that, Jim. I'll say okay. that. Okay. Okay. I could have gotten behind that. And we were just talking about Paul Rudish's Mickey Mouse shorts. To sort of set the scene for Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, as well as familiarize guests who haven't yet seen this version of Mickey Mouse up on the big screen, in the old Monster Sound show, Sounds Dangerous, with Drew Carey Theater at Hollywood Studios, they've taken footage from several of the Paul Ruddish Mickey Mouse shorts, along with some, and created some new linking footage to create the perfect vacation, which is like this 10-minute long presentation. It really, it's a Mickey Mouse highlight reel. It's a lot of big laughs, lots of explosions and violence which again makes me think of Runaway Brain, which has lots of big laughs, lots of explosions, lots of violence, only it's locked in the vault at Disney. And and why is that, Drew? Well, I think they really thought that they were pushing things and bringing Mickey into the modern era. And I think that there were some executives and other people at the company that said, maybe you went a little too far. And I think that you and I have sort of anecdotally been told over the years that that there's an element of kind of lecherousness with the the monster Mickey mm-hmm. and his attitude towards Minnie that is just totally inappropriate. And so it really has been kind of sequestered away for a very long time. I mean, it, it, it opened in 95. It was at the Cannes Film Festival in 96. Yes. Yeah. Um, First of all, folks, I want to be sure you head over to Polygon and and read the story that's there. But I, I got the original read the original draft and and as happens with anything, the editor gets their hands on it and some great stories fall by the wayside. But this was once thought to be such an important film at the studio. Like as you mentioned, it was it was chosen to open the nineteen ninety six Cannes Film Festival back May of that year. It, yeah, it was it was out of competition, but it was running with a movie called Ridicule, mm-hmm. which I believe was in contention for the Palm Door. So I mean, mm-hmm. this was a big deal. They flew everybody out there. You know, Andreas Deja was sitting next to the French cultural commissaire. Yeah, 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 it's like it's pretty amazing. Yeah, no, absolutely. But at the same time. The actual origin of Runaway Brain, it didn't come out of the division of the company that you you would think it would, but rather consumer products? Yes. I mean, what what is good about having some friends in in high places, or at least used to be in high places, you can kind of vet this thing. And -hmm. and so one of the things I learned was that there was kind of a a cross-company powwow Mm -hmm. where every business unit kind of sat in a room and said, what are we going to do with with Mickey Mouse and consumer mm-hmm. products was the one that was really, really wanted it. They were the most excited about the project. They had kind of pushed it into existence and they thought the short, which they wanted to be wacky and out there had ultimately pushed things too far when they finally saw it. And, you know, Kathleen Gavin, who is, I think one of the unsung heroes of the Disney Renaissance, she told me sort of the story about how every time John Lasseter was at the animation building, mm-hmm. he would go across the street and schmooze marketing and consumer mm-hmm. products just to make sure that he always had their support mm-hmm. when the movie was coming out. And when Runaway Brain came out, there were very little in the way of consumer products. Although I was at Oogie Boogie Bash last weekend and I saw a guy with a t-shirt that looked like it was it had been in a basement since 1995. So there were some <laughs> there were some things that were that were out there. 
Cool, cool. I know you didn't touch on this in the article, but what I find intriguing is the timing here. This is the early 90s mm-hmm. where Disney Consumer Products says they want something that's wacky and out there. Right. Ren and Stimpy debut over on Nickelodeon starting in August of 91. And the show kind of flames out in 95. But how much of this do you wonder the let's do something outrageous with Mickey was based on how pe- how many people in the industry were talking about Ren and Stimpy? Yeah, I mean, you and I both know that the 90s was a time where things that were really in your face were were popular in animation and, and everything, really. I mean, I watched these old, like, 90s compilations of... Uh, commercials on youtube and it's just everything is so aesthetically (laughs) out of control oh no no absolutely there's a reason why we 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 turned the television off a lot during that period right but (laughs) what i love about this is you want to cover the ideas that were too extreme even ahead of runaway brain and and can you you talk about the pseudo ghostbusters thing that they, they toyed with making well, yeah, what's interesting is that this was not the first version that Chris Bailey wanted to do. He wanted to mm-hmm. do one called Taurus Trap, which was based on a, a Roger Rabbit short mm-hmm. where baby Herman was trying to kill Roger. So this one was, I believe, Donald trying to kill Mickey while they're on vacation, which was it was too much. But okay. I would still have loved to have seen it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, but yeah, one of the other ones that he he pitched six shorts, mm-hmm. and one of them was a sort of straightforward homage to 1937's Lonesome Ghosts, which mm-hmm. we just recently saw in the Paul Reddish we shorts. We did, we did, And yeah. this is one where Mickey is affected by a supernatural cold, and each time he sneezes, he creates a small gremlin-like snot creature, <laughs> which very much reminds me of Frozen Fever. And oh. every time Elsa sneezes, she creates a snowgie. So it's not... You know, I, I'm saying that maybe somebody stumbled upon these these storyboards, Jim. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's an intriguing idea. Okay. In a weird sort of way, this project gets its marching orders from consumer products. You know, that let's do something that's out there, that's wacky. But then we have Tom Schumacher and Peter Schneider, who are in charge of Disney Animation. And we have Jesse Katzenberg, who's in charge of the whole studio operation. And these three can't necessarily agree on how out there is out there, right? Yeah. I mean, Chris told me that Jeffrey wanted it to be really aggressive Mm -hmm. and didn't want anybody to mistake it for anything that had been dug out of the vault. Mm -hmm. And Tom and Peter were more protective of the classic Mickey and more Mm -hmm. conservative. Mm -hmm. I'd make it more aggressive for Jeffrey, and then Tom and Peter would pull it back, and Jeffrey would push it forward. It was a very Mm push-me-pull-you development process. I have since heard that Peter and Tom never agreed on one thing in their entire career, but... (laughs) That's not really surprising. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if that characterization by Chris is totally true, but it... I mean, when you're telling a story like this, it does have a nice kind of... um, dichotomy to like these two guys and then also Katzenberg just being crazy. It's, it's such a wonderful piece of reporting because you got folks to talk about how in the weeds sometimes they got about the details. Can you, can you talk about, you know, like the opening scene where they signed trying to set the stage where Mickey's playing that game and it, they were even fighting about what was in the background. Yes. So Jeffrey, because Mickey is trying to get Mickey wants a job interview. So Jeffrey mm-hmm. told him that he would wear a Brooks Brothers suit. 
Mm-hmm. Whereas Bailey was trying to give the impression that Mickey was out of college and he has mm-hmm. underwear draped over the banister. <laughs> and I guess the decor of his house was also very controversial. And um, I was told by Chris that Tom Schumacher hated Mickey's living room and he hated his chair. Tom said, I'm going to make it my goal to get rid of that chair. And he, was, he said, I'd go back to him in my office thinking, why do you care? The thing you're paying attention to is, is the, the game that Mickey's playing. Though, I really enjoyed the video game gag that they do now where it's like Dopey hitting the evil witch from Snow White with apples. But can you tell the folks about what the original video game was supposed to be? So Jeffrey was very into this video game idea. And mm-hmm. so he, Chris Bailey, pitched a version where it is a Bambi shooter game like the old uh, duck hunt on Nintendo and I th- I forget if it was Tom or Peter but they they looked at the, the boars and then turned to Chris and said no way in hell and apparently Chris was begging to pitch it to Roy and they said no absolutely not you're not showing this to Roy what complicates the production of, of Runaway Brain is, is of course Late summer of 1994, Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg have their falling out, and Jeffrey is forced to resign. And in fact, that's always been one of the things that people really enjoyed about Runaway Brain is that there's an actual reference to Jeffrey, well, literally getting his pink slip, right? Yeah, there's a scene with Zazu, Mm -hmm. uh, I think right when he gets to Dr. Frank and Ollie's kind Mm -hmm. of uh, tower, and Mm -hmm. there's a pink slip that flies by in the background that says JK on it. And the other thing I want people to look at, if you Mm -hmm. find this on some illicit video Mm -hmm. service, there's actually a model of the Star Trek Enterprise in the background of Mickey's crummy house, which... That's right. Yeah. So, anyway... Some, some Easter eggs. All right. Well, today, looking back from 95, 96, 25-plus years at this point, there's a lot of folks who consider Runaway Brain to be an important film, if only because Sergio Pablo's worked in this film, right? Yeah. I mean, Chris said that he was one of his favorite animators, and, and obviously Sergio would go on to become one of the star animators at Disney on Hercules and Tarzan and Treasure Planet. And he came up with the idea for Despicable Me, and I believe Abominable, or whatever that uh, snowman movie was. Everest, is that what? I, I... No, the other one, the one that was at Warner Brothers with uh, Zendaya. <laughs> oh, Smallfoot, Smallfoot. That's Smallfoot, there we yes. go. Okay. And, he, and he directed Klaus, which you know we both no, love, and is, no, a, right. is a certifiable holiday classic. But Already. The story of the French studio was... Mm-hmm was a part of the story that got, unfortunately, kind of cut down, but I thought was really, really interesting because I think you and I are, are always interested. And in, I think at the time there were satellite studios in Australia, Japan, Paris, and Florida, right? And, and speaking of which, you make a great point in this article where, you know, to the effect of you think about it with Runaway Brain, to think of what we just went through the past year, 18 months, when in fact, film production, in fact, did you catch that credit at the end of Ron's Gone Wrong, where it's, you know, <laughs> their variation of produced at home, which, you know, included desks, back bedrooms, and I want to say cupboards. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. But you point out in this article, in a lot of ways, 
this was the first real film produced remotely in multiple locations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Kathleen Gavin, who was responsible for a lot of the kind of logistical things, said, we had weekly video conferences with Paris in the mid-90s. God knows what technology we were using. Mm -hmm. But once they did, they had these kind of town hall conferences between Paris, Burbank, and Pixar, Mm -hmm. because they were in production on Toy Story at the time. And they were showing things, and Pixar was loving it. Bailey said people were roaring. They had never seen anything like that before, and they felt really energized by it. But obviously that energy wore off, Jim. And um... (laughs) It was a week ago today that the videos started showing up online of Captain America as a zombie lurching out of doorways at the Avengers campus as part of the... Oogie Boogie Bash. By the way, when you and Katie did Oogie Boogie Bash, was was he part of the entertainment? Or? Yeah, we were there. We were there the first night that he was out. <sighs> what was that like? I mean, we actually didn't get to see him. I saw Thor and mm-hmm. God. I mean, Avengers Campus is a whole nother mm-hmm. kettle of fish we got to talk about. But um, okay. it was really interesting to see. I, I mean, I saw pictures from people that were mm-hmm. there at the same time, but we just kind of missed him. Oh, on our okay. on our runs, but mm-hmm. I thought it was very cool that they did it, and I, I love What If, so I think that's really neat. Big fan of What If myself, but it's just the notion of you can do Captain America as a zombie, but Monster Mickey and Runaway Brain is locked in the vault. I mean, that seems to me a ridic- yeah. ridiculous double standard, especially in the wake of Paul Rudders' genuinely extreme, really out there Mickey Mouse shorts. Yeah, I think there there was a there was a walk around Julius, I think, at some point. But I, I, God knows where that costume is. But okay. yeah, probably keep it in the, the same vault along with uh, with Radigan. I gonna... right, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but oh, speaking of Captain America, which makes me think of Chris Evans, which makes me think of Lightyear, the Toy Story spinoff that Pixar is producing, and will be released to theaters on January seventeenth of next year. Uh, Chris Evans will be voicing the title character in, in Lightyear, which is basically the Buzz Lightyear origin story. Uh, Logline for this is how a young test pilot becomes the space ranger that we know and love today. Did you see, though, that the, the news broke last week that Mattel has snagged the global licensing rights for, to make toys for Lightyear? And I was fascinated by this press release because it said under this license, Mattel can now develop multiple types of toys based on this upcoming Pixar release. And these include action figures, play sets, role play uh, the costumes, that sort of thing. Vehicles, preschool, games, plush, value figures, and novelties. And Drew, have you ever heard the term value figure before? That That's new to me. Yeah, I imagine that is maybe like the thing for the big, like big box retailers, like that mm-hmm. line of Pixar toys that are like five or six dollars that you could get an action figure at, at Target. Oh, okay. That's, oh. that's how I took it. But I, I do think that there is, you know, this language also allows for things like i don't know if you ordered the kevin figure from i walk to the mailbox i look there's nothing there i'm sad I, <laughs> yes. you know, the, well again you're the one who, who made me aware of it i think i did not know i wanted until i saw it and now i must have it yeah it's just the, that kind of stuff is so good and i think that i honestly think this is somewhat of a response to the lack of product for luca that, uh, you know, and obviously if anybody ever thought that Light Lightyear was going to Disney Plus, I mean, mm-hmm. look at this agreement and tell me that that was going to be on Disney. It was never going to be on Disney Plus. But no. anyway. No. OK. Worth noting, however, that Lightyear isn't the only film to be released in the summer of 2022 that will feature a hotshot pilot. 
on May 27th of next year, just three weeks before Pixar's Lightyear arrives in theaters, Paramount will be releasing Top Gun Maverick. If you'd like to learn more about this upcoming Tom Cruise film, likewise the uh, the ever-expanding world of John Wick or the Mission Impossible films, might I suggest you listen to Drew's other excellent podcast, which is Light the Fuse. What do we got coming up on this week's show, Drew? Speaking of props and going into things, we are actually going to go meet Chris Peck at his uh, warehouse and... Uh, we're going to go look at some props from Ghost Protocol, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, which is about to celebrate its 10th anniversary. Um, we just wanted to wait and do that interview when we could actually be there at the building, and we're going to take some great video and photos of that. Uh, we are also going to have Teddy Newton on the show, great animation legend, uh, who is the voice uh, of the mission uh, briefing in Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. So a lot of stuff in anticipation of Ghost Protocol's 10th anniversary in December. So if you are a fan of that Brad Bird movie, as you are a fan of his animated movies, please uh, come back and check it out. Seriously, folks, if you want to stay on top of stuff and, and be up to date with some really cool stuff, you need to be following Drew online. And Drew, can you tell folks how to do that? Yes, it's uh, Drew Tailored, uh, like a tailored shirt on Instagram and Twitter. And did you see, Jim, all the people who said, oh my God, I saw this short 25 years ago and I thought I was dreaming and I can't believe, you, you know, I mean, it was um, the response to this article is really crazy because people really thought they had imagined it and they had not. So, yeah, yeah. no, I, I am so glad you stepped up to the plate and did a history about this thing, because for so many people, it came and went so quickly. And, it, and if you think about it, only the people who got God help us, what was it? A kid in King Arthur's court. Was that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I dug up was I found these message boards from people that were actually working at theaters at the time, and it was supposed to go out in front of, I think, 101 Dalmatians, oh, and they pulled the, 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 the theater, they pulled the trailer last minute, and so I, I literally went and found these message boards of people saying, we, we have to pull it, they want us to put more trailers on, I mean, it was, it's crazy how the degree they they obscured this thing. It holds up so beautifully today. Just the battle on the top of the, the skyscraper which yeah. has kind of a, a diehard vibe to it. Yeah. Know? I mean, it's so good. It's so strong. And in this age where we are actively celebrating the Paul Ruddish making motion, it makes absolutely no sense yeah. that this is in the vault. And, you know, I, I, you know what's going to save this? Somebody's going to tell Bob Chapek we can make money off of it. That's true. Well, you got to do your social media plugs now too. Sorry, I was just, I was just. Oh no no no, no 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 no! That's okay. That's okay. And yeah, yes, you can find us on Twitter and us on Instagram at Jim Hill Media and over on Facebook at Jim Hill Media News. But yeah, seriously, folks, go online and start, you know, start that as a hashtag. Make money off of Runaway Brain. I guarantee you, we'll get it out of the box. <laughs> so. All right. Well, anyway, folks, thanks for listening. Uh, on behalf of Mr. Taylor and myself, thanks for giving us some of your time. And we will be back next week with a brand new show.